Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. In these episodes, we will be thinking through complex questions concerning how the War on Terror became the War of Terror for many negatively racialized communities over the past 21 years. Through expert knowledge and the recording of key events, we'll be speaking with academics and activists who are pushing back against the War on Terror's carceral logics. Executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror, guest executively produced and co-hosted with Shireen Fernandez. Shireen is going to introduce our next episode. So we're really fortunate to be joined today by Cameron Khan, who is a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Copenhagen. And Cameron's work is really um, important because it tells us about the um, relationship between linguistics and securitization. And I've learned so much, Cameron, from your articles. Uh, we've obviously worked together on the Trojan Horse Affair articles too. Um, but I'm going to kickstart this episode by focusing on a really crucial chapter that you wrote called What Does a Terrorist Sound Like? And prior to reading this article, I didn't even think about what a terrorist sounds like. We know what they look like or what we're told that they look like, but we're not told what they specifically sound like. And you start the article with a case study about a boy called Mohammed Suleiman, who was six years old and has Down syndrome and is referred onto a, I think it's a counter extremism program in the US. Perhaps you want to just tell us a bit about that particular case study and why you chose it as well. So thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on. So the the chapter deals with different spheres of um, you know where where that kind of listening um, takes place, um, and the particular just to open up. I use one case of a child who has Down syndrome. I think it's in Texas. I think he, he doesn't articulate so so clearly, um, but the teacher interprets what he's saying as like Allah, Allah, for whatever reason. And so this kind of cascades to being referred. To, I think it's child services. And um, at the time I wrote it, uh, there wasn't a, a conclusion to that, but it's just the fact that um, it's, it's all it's all the kind of history that goes into the listening here. Like, why would you think that about a child? Um, and why isn't it just a child who's, who's speaking? And even if they did say a lot, a lot what, you know, what's a six-year-old capable of, right? So one of the, we tend to focus a lot on what people are saying and things, but we don't take into consideration the, like, the kind of way listening and perception is is is, is conditioned, right? So, um, so, so, so Cameron, just to, sorry, Cameron, just to stop you for yeah. just one second. So this was a, a, a young boy with Down syndrome in a school and the teacher thought he said Allah, 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 and yeah. then referred him to child services. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so then, if you think think about something like that, and then you as a kind of opener, and then you kind of understand kind of the mechanisms of referrals, like prevent or when um, Muslims are traveling on the you know in an airplane, you know they get kicked off for speaking Arabic. So you can see the kind of same mechanisms going into all of that. I always say that these things are like decades and centuries in the making really for someone to arrive at that interactional moment with all this ideology going on. So linguistically we know that words are racialized, right? That we cannot say certain phrases in public spaces. So if I got on a train or if I got onto I was on an airplane as a visible Muslim woman and said Allahu Akbar, I can expect to be escorted off by police, right? But also there's a gender balance too. So my husband will have a harder time than I will, let's say, for example. So we know that 
words are racially coded, that they have impacts in various spaces too. And you draw on this, especially when it comes to the way in which English language classes have been used and English language has been constructed as whether or not somebody will be a terrorist or an extremist, right? So in your work, in your research, what are the links, I should say, between how English as a language is understood as um, needed in order to to tackle terrorism, let's say? Yeah, so um, like the talked about in the series before, you know, the kind of renewal of citizenship in the in the 21st century, we will focus on British citizenship particularly as a, something national. It becomes exclusive and kind of moves away from the Commonwealth ideas uh, as a kind of exclusionary um, kind of membership. So really the key point that I start with with that is 2001, we had riots in um, three northern cities. Various reports afterwards said one of the reasons that there was tension was because they, were, they didn't all share the same language. And if they had a you know common language, um, you know that would kind of reduce the kind of tension that led to um, the riots. So even something like that, a conclusion like that, implicitly blames migrant communities, right? Because it's assumed uh, the kind of native, let's say, uh, British uh, English speakers already have that language, so it's the fault of them. So we introduced in the UK, they introduced um, citizenship testing, language testing, um, as a result of all of this, because the idea was. We need a common language, we need a common community, right? Because the communities are falling apart. Um, so you can see, you know, we can talk about the test as in like multiple choice on the one hand, and you know, you need X amount from 24, or, you know, all these things. What would come up in the citizenship test? What year did England win the World Cup or things like that? And I would fail at 100%. You can try, you can try online, you, you can do, you can test them, you need 18 out of 24. Um, but the fact that you have something that's basically a language assessment that's linked to stopping violence as a kind of inoculation, basically, it becomes kind of a securitizing measure, right? Because then it's, if you follow that kind of lineage on the idea of being like unintegrated citizens, because they reject British values, and a part of that, part of that is, is being able to speak English, they, they're not integrated, so they turn to terrorism or they turn to extremism and, and that kind of logic. And so it's no coincidence then in 2011 that David Cameron, in his Munich speech, which was like a security conference, uh, he talks about like multiculturalism has failed and that's kind of the end of that. But if you if you look at his speech, he actually talks about we need to make people speak English. And so you can see everything getting completed together. And this keeps going, even 2015, country extremism strategy. Um, if you look, there's an English language provision in there. Um, so there's a kind of very ideological uh, sense that um, English um, it kind of is a way of making people integrated. I mean, if you look at it historically as well, you know, civilizing missions linked to language, you know, expanding borders, making people think like we do through language. When I was researching my PhD, like many, many years ago, there was this requirement. Wait, Shireen, Shireen, tell the listeners what your PhD was oh, about. Yes, of course. So my PhD looked at preventing schools and how the policies understood by teachers and Muslim parents. And there was a requirement placed on Muslim parents, um, and this is going through like speeches and news reports. So when Shamima Begum, you know, along with her school friends disappeared, traveled to Syria, um, there was like an alert that all of a sudden Muslim parents, and I think specifically they were speaking about South Asian families needed to speak English because if they didn't speak English in the home, how would they be able to read the literature that their children are bringing home or hiding, for example? So in yeah. order to defend the nation, the front lines, 
how you know we need to instill English in order for them to, to read this. But then on the flip side, we have case studies that are shown through Prevent where English parents or white parents are finding, you know, suspicious Arabic literature under their children's beds and therefore they are being referred on to prevent. So we can see how language is being used regardless of if it's English or not, but how it's being used to securitize individual. And I guess what you're saying is bringing back those very ideas of how the home is being, you know, used as a front line essentially in the war on terror. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not the... You know, it's a, it's a kind of pattern that keeps going up in the Trojan horse uh, reports. Um, one of the there's profiles in each school, on, on, on each school. So you have things like free school meals. Um, so, okay, we understand, okay, maybe looking at issues of poverty, the kind of statistics about BME. Okay, mm, okay, fair enough. Uh, not fair enough, but, you know, we, we can start to see, see that profile development. But one of the things that they say, that one of the third kind of uh, things that keeps coming up in the profiles is um, the percentage who speak English as a first language at home. Now, the problem isn't that they don't speak English. The problem is that it's not the first language. And so there's this kind of unease around multilingualism, particularly associated with Muslims, which is why when uh, people hear some sa- uh, sounds, you know, inshallah, or whatever it's going to be, causes this unease and all this Arabic writing. Um, because, you, you know, one of the things you said earlier was that, the, you know, words are racialized, but so is perception. And it's, you know, the words in themselves may not mean much, you know, they may mean something different to you and I or, or the families, um, but the way they are perceived and the role it has in instilling fear around people uh, in the you know, immediate vicinity, it's, that's kind of like, again, as I said, it's uh, it's years in the making. There's, uh, yeah, it's the same writer, uh, the surname is Nguyen, which is Curriculum of Fear and Suspect Communities. And she calls these uh-oh moments, which is when you hear something you know, because being conditioned to see it and report it, or whatever the, the wording is, um, but you hear something, you think, oh, this doesn't feel right, in, in this particular, particularly around Muslims. What she says is that um, that's, you know, it's like very colonial as well, that it's these kind of perceptions we have of language. Because one of the things for people who don't study languages, just as a kind of quick uh, kind of primer, whatever you think about particular languages and words is often what you think about its speakers. So if you think, uh, I don't know, like working class people sound a particular way and sound uneducated, uh, it, that's generally what you're going to think, you've been conditioned to think about that community as well. And uh, so if you've been conditioned to think that um, words that you don't understand in Arabic are going to be associated with Muslims plotting something, then it's no surprise then when people actually do fear that and it has consequences for people in their life. Absolutely. I, and I, I just wanted to think right now about the sort of um, the word extremist and how it is used. So you point to it in your work that, um, you know, words such as extremists and terrorists and so forth, they are racially coded, they are securitized uh, in multiple ways. But we know that, you know, thinking about the word radical, for example, that was never a securitized word pre 9-11, pre-prevent in the UK. Um, and there is a there is a shift right now, and I would say amongst Muslims as well, my own community, who want to adopt the word extremist to other groups. That we don't use the word extremist to describe Muslims, let's say, but we can use it to talk about far-right extremists, let's say, or what's happening in Leicester right now, right-wing Hindu extremists. What is the danger of using this word regardless of who we are using it towards? Um, it's, it's a bit of a trap, right, because the, the kind of... Uh primary extremists are generally we've been conditioned to be the Muslims, right? So we're just extending that usage to, to include other groups while maintaining that there's just varieties of, of 
the kind of primary extremists, right? Um, and I think part of it for Muslims as well is because people, people can see things happening and they're trying to look for the equivalent, you know, that this happens to us, why doesn't this happen to, why don't they suffer the same consequences for what we can and can't do and say? It's it's kind of a weird one because on the one hand, it kind of means everything. Uh, at this, you know, it has such grave consequences. Uh, for appointing someone as, a, as, as an extremist, or whatever. Yeah, it kind of doesn't mean much in, in a way because, you know, we always have this problem, you know, what do, how do we define extremists? What does it mean? In which situation? It doesn't apply to all groups equally. You know, there is clearly something happening because we've seen kind of the far right uh, emboldened. Um, and I, one of the things that Orien, Mondon, and uh, Aaron Winter, I think they've been on the show before, is the mainstreaming then of this kind of usage. But it also, it also weaponizes kind of the, all these mechanisms like prevent or counter extremism that's where we're going towards you know why, why don't get they get the same consequences why, why don't they you know why isn't there intervention for them when really we need to kind of extricate ourselves from those kind of apparatus i think but they speak english the far right speak english right so mm. do do we, so we see the discrepancy with the when it comes to the english language policy that it's only used against a certain group of people therefore is it a bit redundant in that sense i don't know yeah, yeah, so um, it, it first of all, it implicitly blames uh, people who don't uh, speak English, right? So it's going to tend to be uh, or, or perceived to be uh, not learning English, which is always going to be um, uh, people from uh, non-English speaking dominant countries. Uh, so it racializes things immediately. Um, and um, I mean, I've always been dubious of it because even if you learn, I mean, if you go the other way, even if you learn English or, you know, you get English speaking terrorists as well, right? Um, so it's no guarantee uh, in any way. And, you know, the far right operates that way. Yeah. I don't know how multilingual they all are, but I mean, it's safe to assume that they, they operate in England in English, right? So, um, so it, it just, you know, one of the things that, uh, that, you know, I've talked about is that there's this thing, you know, that Jack Derrida talked about, which is like that language has a terrifying ambiguity of belonging and discrimination within it. It's kind of used to unite us all in some ways as kind of this sharing the, the same language, but also it's, it's it, it can be inverted on itself to exclude and discriminate against um, certain groups because it's not experienced in the same way. Yeah, no, I want to flip the conversation now to think about, so you said in your article, what does a terrorist sound like? And I'm going to ask, what does a terrorist listen to? Because we're seeing in the UK, especially this clamping down of um, genres of music, genres of sound, which are associated with criminalization often. So when it comes to terrorism, it is Islamic nasheed. So nasheeds are typically religious songs. Um, and then when it comes to criminality, so to speak, the government is clamping down on drill music, right? So this idea that those who listen to drill music are going to be more inclined to commit violent crimes. Those who listen to certain types of Islamic nasheeds are going to be more inclined to commit acts of violence and terrorism and so forth. Um, you know, I have my own opinions on these both, but I wonder as a linguistic, how do you see this fitting into I guess, narratives of securitization broadly, that we're now moving from individual words to genres of sounds and music and so forth. Again, you know, if we go back to the idea of, you know, what groups are associated with these sounds, uh, I mean, straight away you can see, uh, you know, it's uh, you know, Muslims or particularly urban black uh, communities or youths or whatever. Uh, so we can see it's racialized in that sense, I mean, immediately, right? One of the things sometimes, um, you know, I talk about old moments before where, you know, people hear something which is makes them uncomfortable for 
you know, for the condition that they've had. But we also have to think about what maintains security. And, um, you know, it's music that doesn't sound like that. So it's associated with, I don't know, like the guitar music or, um, you know, um, particular genres that, because, you know, those are okay. You know, nothing happens. Even though we know, for example, you know, you get these kind of heavy metal uh, concerts and uh, far right music, right? Um, but it's never, never kind of recognized in, in the same way. One of the things Anne-Marie Fortier talks about, um, she's got a really great book, uh, Uncertain, Uncertain Citizenship, I think it's called. It just came out uh, for years, years ago. She talks about audio serenity. Um, so these are things that put people at ease. And she actually uses the idea of the oath of the ceremony, um, which, you know, which satisfies the requirement that you want to belong to this community. Uh, but I think if we apply that to kind of music, that there's, you know, particular things that you're comfortable with, that you know, they're okay. But then you've got these things that make people uncomfortable. And that's because of the associations with these particular genres of music. And it's, I think it's no coincidence as well. It's uh, similar times with this and different racism strengthen each other as well. So, you know, we know all these things will be kind of related to like anti-blackness mm. as well. So we can't, we, you know, we have to think about these things kind of entangled together, right? It's because they're protecting a particular, particular kind of audio serenity. I'm cracking up because recently during the Queen's funeral, there was a mosque that sang God Save the Queen or the King. <laughs> yeah. But it was the whole thing, right? That how can these spaces be, you know, advocating for certain things? But that brings me on. I don't know if like Tiso and Chantel, you agree, but like Cameron mentioned about the urban. And like if I wouldn't be um, unnerved if... Somebody walks into a chicken shop, butchers, into a barbershop or whatever and said, assalamu alaikum, and they weren't Muslim. Like, it's so ingrained into urban culture, right? This sort of, I don't know, Muslim sounds of the city. I don't know. Yeah, God willing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on where we are. Yeah. I don't know if you guys agree. I think, especially in uh, urban sounds like hip-hop, Islam is tightly wound into hip-hop in hip hop communities as well. So there's a different understanding. People are not unnerved or feel funny about it. And especially in the UK context now, there is since the, I guess, early nineties, there's been a kind of meshing of young Bengali kids, young Pakistani kids, mixing West Indian culture, African culture, and it's, it creates something new, which is reflected in the, in the kind of common language that we use today. So the, you, the phrases that kids use, it's a mixture of Islamic words, uh, Bengali words and West Indian words, Patwa and all these things all together to make a new sound. So it's quite interesting when you're talking about linguistics, like the the language of the East End, the Cockney, it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Instead, we have this, what, I guess it's what's called a modern polygot. But I guess what people are scared of and what's kind of entrenched in um, Western philosophy is the idea of like the Tower of Babel. L- loads of different languages equals disunity. And the process of nationalism is to kind of iron out this kind of disunity. So you have this in most empires, I guess. If you, if you look, if we're talking about from an Islamic point of view, when you have like the um, the Umayyad Caliphate, so we have various languages, but there's an imposition of Arabic on everyone just to get them to have that uniformity. The, the French use this later on, the English do the same. So this idea that if you have many languages, there's a disunity. Yeah, I don't know. Shireen, you look like you're getting excited by these comments. <laughs> oh, come, oh, come on, tell them, tell them. Tell them. Rang the bells in my head. I can see them. Because, so Cameron, in your article, and academics are going to be cussing me out right now. Let them come. You know what is so funny? You use the word shibboleth. 
in your article, right? And shibboleth, obviously, for academics, you know, it's the access point that we need to get to our journal articles and chapters of books and whatever, right? So and just to be clear, it's an it's a it's an online like t- tell the listeners that aren't academics what it is. So it's it's an online, I guess, security portal that you need to use in order to access journals and chapters of books and all your sorts of academic articles. But I had no idea what it meant apart from my very narrow view of academia. But Cameron, you you discuss what shibboleth means and this idea about the test of the shibboleth, right? I wonder if you can talk about it a bit more because it links to this idea about religion, securitization and linguistics too. I don't know how TSOC got me there, but you did somehow. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the shibboleth actually refers to um, the book of Judges in the uh, Old Testament and uh, refers to kind of a post-conflict um, kind of like there's, you know, two two tribes so as the ethnic tribes have, have had this kind of war. And so um, the Gileads and the Ephraimites. And so um, I was getting confused, but one group is trying to get back around, um, you know, after the war. And one of the th- they can't tell the difference by looking at them if um, if they're a friend or an enemy. So one of the things that they ask people to do is they say, "Can you pronounce shibboleth?" Okay. Now knowing that this group has a different pronunciation, which would be similar, and so they're able to determine who was a friend and who was an enemy basically based on their pronunciation of that word. So you know, in that case, it's you know, quite extreme they're killing, right? But you see this repeating over, you know, over history as well, and um, that people look for these kind of signifiers of who's a friend and who's an enemy, even if it's not it's strictly visible straight away. So, um, and, and you know, history has shown that there's there's different versions of this. The idea is that there's particular sounds uh, and particular perceptions of those, um, which determine who's a, who's basically a, a kind of one of us and who's one of them. And you know, we consider them as the enemy, and that has consequences, right? So um, it's been kind of spread out. It's been used also as a kind of metaphor within language testing. So the example I used earlier, like the citizenship test, right? So it's this kind of spirit of the shibboleth. Uh, so Tim Oracles is like the regimes of shibboleth, shibboleth consciousness. Um, so it puts us in this mode of, of uh, judging all the time. Um, so that's basically what's happening in these kind of, um, you know, look you know, look out for terrorists or look out for extremists, is that we're being primed to now find different ways of identifying who's one of us and who's one of them and who's dangerous and who's not. But the consequences are so far reaching, right? So if we think about the war on terror, if we think about Guantanamo Bay and the torture that was used on detainees, they were often had to say certain things in order to not be framed as the terrorist. So declare that they were part of a certain group, declare their allegiance to certain groups of people. And then we see in the mundane too, in schools, Something, our citizenship, something as simple as showing your allegiance to the king or the queen or the monarch, um, clarifying what you're saying, um, not wearing certain things. Um, So, for example, there was one prevent referral where a child comes into school wearing a T-shirt which said, die like Abu Bakr or live like Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr at the time um, was the so-called leader of the Islamic State, but the Abu Bakr that the child was referring to was the prophet's friend or, or you know, the next person in the leadership. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that this, this, this idea of distinguishing enemy and from friend is used routinely in war. And it's used routinely, as we can see today, um, in, you know, I call it the legacies of the war on terror, but I don't know, it's still ongoing in my perception anyway. 
Well, one of the things is, uh, also with with the language, I mean, we can say something, but we just not uh, we, we just don't know how it's going to be interpreted, right? Um, so something that sounds innocent to us maybe doesn't sound innocent to someone else. Uh, so one of the things that always comes up um, is the work that I've been doing with, with uh, language materials that I use, like Pacteen, is that words only half belong to us and half belong to, to, to the person perceiving us. Um, so that's why there's a public um, kind of demonstration of like the national anthem. Because it's not really, it's, you know, it's partly for the kids and it's partly for, for, for you know, whoever was there, right? But partly it's actually showing other people out in the world. That we're loyal to and you know we're with you in, in all of its different ways so it's also you know um you know words of histories but the words also have futures because we're you know we're anticipating how people are going to perceive us and so you know sometimes there's preemption you know for example of trying to show people that yeah you know this is what we believe or this is what we don't believe um so language is actually quite you know fluid and it's quite dynamic in that respect you know we think you know once we've said something it's gone it's actually you know words are alive how are words uh, acted out in the online space? Because obviously it's all about interpretation. So someone might write something and or tweet something and it's interpreted in some certain way. So does that affect this kind of uh, securitization? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, in, in different ways as well. I mean, it's getting interpreted, you know, um, you know, for security services, of course, we know that, you know, they, 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 they're on looking to see what's happening. But um, also in terms of a... Uh, you know, people are afraid of like the way things get appropriated, um, even by like the far right. Uh, you know, particularly for academics. You know, um, in time, you know, in kind of being perceived in, in particular ways. I mean, even you know, with the the Queen's death, right? There were some people immediately saying, "I'm not going to say anything because I've just got no idea how I'm going to be interpreted." Yeah, uh, I think Owen Jones, for example, said, "You know, one of the things was like not to end up in the newspapers." You know, this period. Um, so it's. I think one of the knife edges, particularly for people from racialized communities, is that you just don't know where the judgment's coming from almost. Uh, it could happen at any time and you've got no idea what's going to happen, right? So I think that's the particular kind of anxiety and fear that's been instilled uh, on people. And the part of that is because you see what happens to other people. So it's kind of um, uh, this kind of host- like this kind of hostility and uh, you know what some of those things may happen to you too. So There's a permanency about words, right? That we have to be careful of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I, the states aren't always the same for everyone, right? You know, like you said, you know, there's particular words that as Muslims, if we were to say them, you know, has one reaction, uh, but others may be able to say the, the same thing, but for example. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I, also, um, we know, uh, the other thing is as well is um, we know that kind of securitizations uh, kind of interact in different global contexts as well. Um, so you see these kind of like changes of like discourse uh, where, They'll copy each other's like discursive strategies, for example, of like the way they, you know, the, the one example is the, you know, Muslims are replacing us, right? Or immigrants are re- uh, replacing us. And then you see that played out in different versions that justifies uh, particular abuses. Um, so I just give you one example. I mean, I talked about the get, the, sorry, we talked before, but the, there's a, a policy called the ghetto policy in Denmark. And you know, which marks out particular areas that they consider vulnerable or you know prone to criminality. And one of the interesting things in that is that they include a counter counter uh, violent extremism dimension to that. And part of that is actually just responding to other discourses in other countries and their policies because that's what they do, and that we should be doing the same because it, it's framing the same problematic community here locally, but also connected to these kind of global problems that they're causing. 
That is so messed up on so many different levels that language is used, especially to dictate whether or not you are seen as included or excluded. Although I would probably argue that it's not the be all and end all, right? That even if you spoke lang- uh, the English language and there's sort of like a liberal racism to it, I don't, you know, like, oh, you speak so well, well, you speak the language so well, right? Um, something about your accent too. Um, that, uh, yes, it is used as a signifier, but then also the way that you dress, the way that you look is, you know, in many ways, like who cares if you speak or do not speak the language because that racism is always going to exist, right? Yeah, I mean, even even buying into all of that, you know, that kind of like, that, that kind of hierarchy. So who's who's considered then, if you were to, to you know, put it out on the British national like level, it's, you know, the British native speaker, right? Who's considered a native speaker, you know, we could go on there. But even within that, you know, you have what was before the Queen's English, which would be like, you know, the kind of most prestigious variety, right? So, with, you know, there's all these kind of dynamics always at play um, with all of this. Um, you're kind of right in a way because there's a promise of language, which is that, you know, if you learn the language, you're a member of the, you know, society and, and you're equal. But we know that just doesn't play out in reality. You could be a well-spoken person and still suffer all the social inequalities, you know, um, in, in the you know in the country. So um so, so yeah so it's kind of like a it's kind of double-edged sword like on the one hand it's promised but then it's you know it doesn't always kind of pay itself back in a way and um that's, that's always there right and that, that goes for different types of language as well like academic language is like a passport into um higher education you know it, these things are always going on these type of impositions and one of the things you said there as well i think it's interesting about the kind of um people that are involved you know what's there's particular linguistic practices that we attach to particular people and communities. And again, that's based on our perceptions as well. So, um, you know, that's why people think posh people, are, you know, people who speak in a posh way are really smart because there's that prestige uh, not. Know, attached. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, that's why, right? But then you may have someone with a regional accent who's just not taken seriously out or who's probably, you know, may well be miles you know, smarter than, than anyone else you could ever meet. So we we always have to kind of uncover why we've got those associations in, in our minds and, and why we think that way, the way that society's kind of conditioned us, right? Is it easy to explore like language and culture? Are they linked? So obviously when when these securitization force, uh, people are looking into like uh, extremists or people who, are, who they class extremists, is it because they link to a certain culture, that language they see is linked to a certain culture? So, for example, they if they listen to uh, Islamic music, they think it's linked to a certain type of culture. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you know, not only Muslims, right? It's, it's the same as black yeah. uh-huh. uh, communities, right? So, I think what's interesting is the, the way that uh, it's. Uh, so, I'm going to have to big up my uh, Jonathan Mosa and Nelson Flores. So they've done this idea of racial linguistics, which is uh, which is many things, but uh, they argue that there's this type of white listening subject who's kind of judges um you know the way people speak and what you know determines what type of person is you know that is speaking these or writing these languages but that white listening subject is not necessarily a white person it could be an institution it's kind of like an ideological position right so who gets to judge what what cultures you know the the over determination of culture in relation to language right but you know, if you think about the histories that are conditioned to be that well, you know, they listen to this music, they belong to this culture, they look like this, you know, how do we get there, right? So, um, um, yeah, so that, and, and it obviously goes wrong as well, right? So, um, you know, we always hear these cases, uh, and one of the ones is um, uh, 
there's one I had in the chapter that um, Shireen was referring to earlier on, um, which was that um, an American woman was on a bus and she saw two people speaking in a language she didn't understand. We she interpreted, uh, you know, one had a turban and the other person you know, looked Asian. Like she called the police and they, they, she said that they were talking about bombs and they were talking in Arabic. And it turned out that the, it was a Sikh guy who was wearing a turban who just arrived in the US and he was an asylum seeker and he, he was talking in Punjabi to some Pakistani guy, right? So he heard him on the phone talking and said, you know, how's it going? You know, didn't, you know they had their conversation. Um, but the level of conditioning that's required to get to the, the point where someone who doesn't understand that, those languages but looks at those people and claims that they speak in Arabic and then calls uh, kind of the police sergeant, you know, that level of condition that's required to get to that stage is, is, um, is just incredible. And on top of that, there's no sanction for, for getting it along. I think that's the other, you can do all this damage to people referring, you know, calling to police or the security services, but almost always it's considered, well, you know, you, you know, you, you're on the safe side, right? Oh, just what the hell, man. Like it's so depressing, isn't it? I just wanted to clarify, Cameron, for the sake of our listeners, there is, let, let's just hypothetically say, there is an auntie in Tower Hamlets, cannot speak English, all of a sudden, um, you know, her community centre down the road is advertising English language lessons for free. They've received a whole pot of funding to do so. This auntie decides, okay, I'm going to go and decide to to learn English. What are the consequences of her doing so? Well, you know, and knowing that, let's say she doesn't know this, the money came from counter extremism or prevent. Will she get referred on to prevent for not learning the language quick enough, for example? Um, is it just a case of, you know, take up the resources when you can? Like, you know, what are the implications that attaching English les- lessons um, is to, you know, securitizing uh, individuals and communities? Well, that, that almost happened. Uh, so, um, so for years, within adult education funding, um, like ESOL, which is English for Speaks of Other Languages, which is aimed at migrants, has been really underfunded, but it's oversubscribed. So there's demand, but there's just... You know, money doesn't tend to be then, particularly you know in terms of austerity, was getting cut further. There was a point where David Cameron was uh, promising um, money, basically black millions, um, to encourage Muslim women. Specifically, he said Muslim women um, as part of this thing about you know uh, self empowerment and um, and also it was around about the period when um, people were going to ISIS. Mm-hmm. seen as this kind of counter extremism way. Um, I think maybe Brexit came up uh, like uh, and that type of thing, which kind of you know, which uh, which was the main political thing. So it actually almost happened that that way, almost that way, right? Um, look, you know, there are you know being in a country learning the language helps people's daily lives. I, I don't think there's you know there's much doubt about that. I mean, it does help, right? I think the difficulty is is the kind of values that are associated with um, particular programs and whether it's I mean, if you've got money in a community centre that's, you know, got children's, uh, sorry, baby care, and it's there genuinely to support people is one thing, right? Um, but then obviously when it's linked to country extremism, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a really problematic kind of uh, exchange you're doing there. Um, I think there's a deeper ideological thing to this as well, which is that um, we need to think about um, the role of, like, language but proficiency and that type of thing has in society. Um, so quite often, um, you know, Etiso said it as well, that, you know, uh, languages are linked to kind of nation building. And, um, you know, it's considered one of the kind of 
primary ways of bringing a community together that we share the same language. Um, so we have to think, I think, of the role of multilingualism in these type of societies as well. Um, because, you know, if you come like the example we used earlier on of like young kids swapping each other's languages and using each other's terms, language kind of develops and people find, you know, multilingualism is actually the norm. People do use words that they, you know, they, they you know, from other cultures uh, and all these things. So, um, so I think there's a deep, deep ideological point about um, the role of uh, language and nation building and the way that leaves itself open to be, you know, to the extreme form, which is that, you know, some people have enemies. And I think that um, that's uh, quite a deep philosophical element to that. Definitely. Cameron well, is probably the nicest academic I've come across too. Like, <laughs> yeah, you are so generous. <laughs> You're so nice as well. Yeah. So lovely, just breaking down. Like, it's really complicated. I think linguistics is one of the most complicated fields for me, but the way that you broke that down, just so lovely of you, Cameron, to like give us your time too. Yes, thank you so much, Thanks, Cameron. Man. No, thank you for having me. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed these reflections um, from Cameron and we will see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Legacies of the War on Terror. Guest executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.